Why don't we grab our Bibles? We're going to share some scriptures this morning. Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians? I'm going to pray for us and then see where the Lord leads us today. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that there is no coincidence in your kingdom, that you are the author, the perfecter, the finisher. You're the one who's at work when we see it and when we don't. And Lord, what a joy it is that we can come and lift our eyes to see you for who you are, proclaiming your purposes and the greatness of your name. As we turn to your scriptures this morning, Lord, would you cause them to go deep in our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see you afresh, to behold the wonder of who you are, that we might become more like you, radiating your goodness and grace to a world that desperately needs you. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way this morning, we pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, let's turn there together, that's where we're going to begin. And in fact, we're concluding a series this morning that we've been in for the past couple of months, simply entitled, We the Church. Looking at the nature, the heart, the beauty, the wonder, the mystery of this thing called the church. If you and I, a church that's not a building, it's not an organization, it's not programs, although it may involve all the above, it is the redeemed ones called by his name, this people that Christ, through his death and his resurrection, would commission to bring the greatness of the gospel and the greatness of his name to the ends of the earth. And in fact, we began this series in the book of Ephesians, so I thought it was fitting if we come back here and we've intentionally been looking at not so much pillars, but this process of what it means, what it looks like, and acknowledging that it's only a glimpse. It really is. It's these glimpses of what the church is. We could easily do a sermon series on each one of these elements. What it means to be a people that really seek to know God, to worship Him, that high call to worship. This call and commission and command to love one another. It's our worship that fuels our love. And as we began last week, it's our love that fuels our mission. What we do, how we respond, how we live is fueled by our love for God and our love for one another. So if you've got your Bibles, let's read Ephesians 2, which is always a good book and a portion of Scripture to go to if ever you're in need of encouragement. As Paul writes this incredible letter, exhorting the Ephesians, encouraging them, proclaiming the greatness of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved and he's raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. A couple more verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. It's rich in theology. It's powerful in its application to us. We're we're reading of this Savior who's come, who's made a way, who's rescued and redeemed us, you and I, and all of humanity. The power of His cross to make us alive, seated with Him in heavenly places. There's about a lifetime sermon series just in that portion alone. But I want to reduce it, if we can do such a thing, to simply two words as our focus this morning. Verse 7, why has He done that? What, what is this, what is the end goal? Because we've talked about, if you like, the origins of the church, we've talked about the nature of the church, we've talked about all the realities and outworkings, or not all of them, but we've covered certain aspects. But what really is the end goal? What was it that was in the view and the heart and the desire of Christ as he came to make a way for us? Verse 7 says this, two words, so that. So that. So what, you might ask? Well, let's go on, and then we'll unpack it this morning. So that in the coming ages, that's talking about The eternal age, not just the temporary here and now. Certainly that's applicable, but really Paul is is lifting our gaze. He's saying he's done all this so that for all eternity, as we praise him and the glorious wonder and reality of who he is, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that for all eternity, you and I would be a proclamation and a declaration and a demonstration of His incredible mercy and grace. That's His desire, that that you and I, you and I, His people, would forever declare and proclaim the greatness of who He is. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure why, but as I read that passage and as I reflected this week, I was reminded of a joke. I was going to say an oldie, but a goodie. I'm not sure if it's a goodie. But it went like this. There was a pastor one Sunday morning who woke up, got out of bed. He said, you know what? I don't feel like going to church this morning. I won't ask for a show of hands if any pastors or non-pastors ever feel like that on a Sunday morning. He said, you know, I'm going to play a game of golf. So he calls his 2IC on the phone. He says, look, I'm not feeling 100%. Can you preach for me? And you know, this is not applicable in our environment because I don't like golf. So there's no relevance here. So off he goes for a round of golf. And, you know, the angels are having a conversation with Jesus. And uh, one of the angels says to Jesus, are you going to stand for this? I mean, look, look what your servant is doing. He should be there preaching, proclaiming your word, and he's off playing golf. And uh, Jesus looks to his angel and says, well, watch this. And so the pastor, he lines up at this hole. It's a par five. 
He hits the sweetest shot that he's ever hit. It's a gust of wind behind the ball. It flies the 500 plus yards and, and falls directly into the center of the hole. His pastor's standing in awe and amazement. What on earth has just happened? He's never hit a shot like that in his life. And the angels, with a look of amusement, look to Jesus and they say, what, what is all that about? That's not what we're expecting. And Jesus says to them, he says, yeah, but think about this. Who is he going to tell? Who is he going to tell? Who is he going to tell? What good is the greatest golf shot you've ever made if there's never an opportunity to tell anybody? There's something about the telling that completes the joy and the experience, isn't there? Why, why do we you know, go through these exploits? It's, it's so that there's a story to be told. And this is the wonder of the gospel that we're this glorious story of grace we're caught up in. We've got something far better than a hole in one, far greater, and not something that we are meant to or need to or required to keep to ourselves. In fact, quite the opposite. This is a message that must be proclaimed. It's too good to keep to ourselves. We have the answer that the world is longing for. We have the one. The Savior, the Redeemer, the one who's rescued us, the one who's saved us from sin and futility, and he's drawn us into his kingdom of life. What, what a story you and I have to proclaim. See, we're not just simply a club called together to have nice, little, comfortable meetings. We're called together as his people to love one another, as we talked about last week, to, to bring our gifts, to build up the church so that, that's not the end game, that's just the beginning, so that we might proclaim the greatness of who he is for now and for tomorrow and next month and all the days that the Lord would keep us here on this planet with every breath that we have to give glory and honor and praise to his name. So we're called to do, to bear witness to Jesus, his saving power, to give the world a glimpse of God's redeeming and restoring nature, to give a taste of this kingdom, to give a vision of how things ought to be in a world that's distorted by sin. That is our mission that he'd save us, that he'd rescue us, that he'd make us his people, that he'd fill us with his spirit, give us giftings to work together, all heading towards this goal where we get the glorious gifts of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And he gets the glory, the honor, and the praise. And so I want to I reflect upon that and kind of bring it down into one particular area. How, how is it then? That's kind of the, the broad umbrella. We're called to proclaim the glorious wonders of His grace. We're called to be that kind of people. What does it actually look like? Grab your Bibles and let's go to Matthew 28. Because I want to remind us, and we've reflected in this series a number of ways and times on the great commandment which always should come before the passage we're going to read. But it's our, our love for him 
and our experience of His glorious love for us as we love one another that propels us in to something so that. This, of course, is a passage as uh, Jesus has, has been resurrected from the grave. He hasn't yet ascended to His Father. He meets one final time with His disciples. And if we read Matthew 28, right at the end, verse 19, or the end of verse 18, Jesus came to them, being His disciples. He says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as we reflect, if you like, as we finish this series and we ponder upon this great and glorious mission that each and every one of us has been called to, I want to narrow that down. There's many different aspects we could go to, but simply on that reality of making disciples. What does that actually mean for us to go and to make disciples? Because we read here, don't we, as Jesus is commissioning his disciples, he doesn't give them a great suggestion. doesn't give them a great idea. He doesn't give them a list in preferential order of some things that should be their focus. He gives them a mandate. He gives them a commission. There's an urgency, but there's an importance and a priority about this. And although there's many things that have changed over the course of the past 2,000 years, the Great Commission still should arrest something in our heart. The centrality of this mission to go and to make disciples. Without that focus, the church loses its mission. And without the mission, the church ceases to be the church. There has to be a flow. We're encountered and we love and we're called to go and to make disciples. So two things we see here, just up front. One is that this is a biblical mandate. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. There is this necessity for us to be disciples and churches that make disciples. In fact, many commentators would say this is the single most crucial factor in a church, that the church must be about producing healthy disciples. If there's no end game, then what have we ultimately accomplished? We've maybe held some nice meetings. We've held some conferences. We've built some big, nice buildings. But have we actually accomplished the mission or have we fallen short? The second reality here that I want to point out up front is that effective discipleship must involve everyone. See, he doesn't say he does he in the Great Commission. He doesn't say, go therefore and build churches and programs and organizations that can do disciple making for you. And there is an importance and there's a value in discipleship programs, in material. I'm not saying we discount all that, but ultimately, disciple making involves us, it involves people, it involves you, and it involves me. 
So if we're to effectively fulfill this commission as a church and as individuals, we can't relegate or delegate our responsibility. It must involve everybody. We must move beyond this model that particularly in the Western church, I think we've become stuck in, that church is about information and entertainment and move to this place where church is about activation and participation. So there's three realities of disciple-making that I'm hoping will encourage us. If we think of this notion and this call to fulfill the Great Commission. See, with this, with discipleship as the goal, it focuses on a few things. Number one is simply this. That discipleship focuses us on the within, not the without. Moves us from just focusing on the within, let me put it that way, and focusing on the without. Let me explain what I mean. The mission of community and, and church and this environment that we have talked about and unpacked, this love for one another, this bringing of gifts together that the church may be built up, as wonderful it is, the ultimate mission of the church is not to keep us safe and separate from the outside world. The mission of the church is not to offer this insular, elite and exclusive club where we come together and we lock the doors and we have nice little meetings. If that's where we stop short, it'd be a little bit like the sporting team that got together in the locker room before the game and they talked about the strategy and they encouraged one another and strapped everyone up and did whatever they do to get ready for the game, but then never actually left the locker room, never actually got onto the field to play. See, we, we come and we encourage one another and we stir one another up, as we talked about last week, to love and to good works. We attend to one another's injuries. We pray for one another. And in unity, we get to be on the same page. But we do that in order or so that we might influence a culture and specifically people around us for Jesus, that we might proclaim his gospel. Did you notice even in this commissioning, I mean, Luke brings this out as well, but Jesus gives his disciples this commission, but he says, just wait in Jerusalem. So he doesn't say, here's, here's the commission and this is how it's going to work. What I want you to do is find a remote little area and build big walls around you, have this little separate community, and as people believe in Christ, drag them out, bring them out of the world. And I mean, there's been many movements, hasn't there, in the church that have had that kind of emphasis. Jesus never emphasized that. He said, wait in Jerusalem, wait in the epicenter. And even as the Holy Spirit came, it wasn't just for those people in the building. There was this intentional from the beginning overflow. Those people are filled, but people came from the entire city and region. There was this demonstration that this gospel and this infilling of the Spirit and this proclamation of what Jesus had done, it wasn't just for the 120 in the room. It must move beyond that 120 into the streets, into the nations, and into the far corners of the world. So there is this sense of discipleship. So we cannot make disciples by going one of two areas, either by withdrawing from society, as challenging as it might be, and having our own little nice polite meetings on a far hill somewhere, just praying that the rapture had come and Jesus had come and fix everything up. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. I pray it all the time. 
But that's, that's not our mission. It's also not our mission to become so synchronized with the world that there's no difference between the way we live and the world lives. To truly make disciples, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. Because we need to be in where the people are, but not of, so that we're leading them in the world to Christ. So there is this recalibration as we make making disciples the mission. This within versus without. Number two, it focuses us on people, not processes. So I think we've got so stuck in the church that making disciples is all about the, the platforms that can reach people. It's all about the, the training programs we can put. And again, there's... There's nothing wrong with the infrastructure around it, but ultimately, what we're after is people, not processes. We're not making disciples of processes, we're making disciples of people. This is a fascinating business case I came across a little while ago, and it's often used in different spaces, but it's comparing the Hyatt hotel chain to Airbnb. The Hyatt hotel chain, which currently or at the time um, prior to Airbnb coming on the scene, was by far the leader worldwide in hospitality. Over a couple of generations, they'd build up this giant portfolio of 600 locations, 57 countries, and more than 550 cities that they'd offer accommodation in. It was the high point of, of um, hospitality. Massive inf infrastructure based on these real assets. Well, into that scene comes Airbnb. We all know what Airbnb is, this room-sharing website. And all of a sudden, within a couple of years, Airbnb had turned the traditional hospitality model on its head because they built this um, business that rather than building physical assets, they could simply tap into the power of people to leverage this abundance of opportunities. The result is that Airbnb is now in more countries and cities than Hyatt. They've got over 3 million listings, including even 1,400 castles. It's now become a $30 billion empire, and Airbnb is worth more than the Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt combined. This incredible disruption with a very different model, as one observer put it. The genius of Airbnb was to create a platform that didn't create more assets, but connected the existing assets and made them accessible to everybody. Airbnb, of course, can add new rooms and countries for free, whereas Hyatt has to build them or buy them. There's a huge infrastructure behind it. Now, I think there's a lesson for us in the church. I think that we've been, um, at times in history, and certainly in the Western church, we've been far more focused on building assets and this is the way that we can reach more people, is that we can have bigger buildings, and we can have better programs, and we can keep, if you like, suck all the resources out of the people, keeping them within here, and hoping that it will have a greater effectiveness in the gospel. In reality, the exact opposite is actually true, and I know I've mentioned a few times through this series how impacted I've been looking at the Iranian underground church. This little burgeoning revival that God has used to turn upside down this, this country that was closed to the gospel without any buildings, without any sort of formalized, what, certainly in the sense that we'd say, formalized structure of a church. 
And it comes simply through this sense for Iranian believers of belonging, but then as each individual encounters Christ, of them also becoming the church. And so from day one, they, they reach out, and as you're brought in to the Iranian underground church, what happens from the very first day is that you become a disciple, and you're discipled by someone, but you also from day one begin to disciple other people. That, that, that's it. That's the extent of their structure. And they provide resources to these people. But they say that that is the heart of the church, is that you're a disciple and that you are discipling others. And of course, God has used that incredible ways. So am I saying, well, here's the answer to the Western church. We just need to get rid of any sort of formal organized gathering, get rid of the buildings. You can perhaps breathe a sigh of relief because that is not the case at all. I don't believe that's what God's calling us to do. In fact, I don't think it really matters if you're a church of 20 or you're a church of 20,000. It's not the size that is important. What God is, is bringing us back to is not a particular model, but it is a particular focus. This is what we need to regather and recapture is this reality of God using us as his people, the focus on people, not just on processes. That brings me to my third, and it's simply this, that if we focus on disciple-making, then we become producers, not consumers. Producers, not consumers. See, I remember going to a, a church growth seminar. This is probably a decade plus ago. Particular stream and flavor of the church. I traveled up to Sydney. And there was a lot of good things in there. But I remember there was a keynote, uh, keynote talk given by one of the high up people in this particular denomination. And he, he said at the end of the talk, he's like, I, I want to give you my five top strategies for, for uh, growing the church. This is, how the church this, this is where the church is going to come into its own. And to be honest, I can't remember four of them. But I always remember his, his top one. And he said, number one, this is how you grow the church, he said. And to probably give away what space, what, uh, what flavor of the church it was. But he said, number one strategy to grow the church, he says, you've got to put on big events. Like that is where it's at. You've got to rent out stadiums. You've got to get people in. You'll get bums on seats. You know, get big name bands. People will come. We'll get everybody to fill in the building. And again... <sighs> There's nothing in essence bad with that kind of attractional, um, attract, attractional church development. I'm not completely against it. I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But the problem with that kind of ministry and so much of the focus, whether we acknowledge it or not, is that we're far more concerned about what's coming into the church than we are what is coming out of the church. We're far more interested in getting bums on seats. What's going to attract a crowd? How can we get more people in? Whereas very rarely do we stop and think, well, what's the end goal and what are we actually producing? Are we actually producing disciples or are people just coming along and having a good time and there's a feel and a flavor of something going on, but there's nothing at the other end Coming, up, uh, com coming out that is anything resembling these radical 
disciples and followers of Christ. And so I want to just finish this morning, and maybe Adam can come and get ready. But I want to talk about one particular example that I'm hoping will encourage our hearts as we kind of bring and try and wrap together what's been a series that's gone various different places. As we look at this this call for us to be people and churches that make disciples. Because the encouragement for me is it doesn't take big buildings. It doesn't take million dollar budgets. It doesn't take the latest and the greatest and the most amazing anything this world could offer. What it takes is a people committed to the Lord and committed to one another. One of these expiring examples is this, this group. It became a movement, the movement of Moravians. Who's heard about the Moravians? Few of us have. They were this particular group that lived in the 1700s, and they were effectively ethnic refugees. It was religious persecution. There was increasing societal division. And it so happened that this very small group of Christian believers, they found shelter on the land of a wealthy count called Zinzendorf of all things. And funnily enough, as they eventually found refuge there and came from all these different places, you'd think that their, their common shared experience would develop a sense of unity. It actually did the exact opposite, and there was bitterness and struggle, and we're talking about a community that was no more than a couple of hundred people. So from five years, from 1722 to 1727, the small community struggled. There was dissension, there was bitterness, there was judgment against one another. But then the Lord did something in their midst on the 12th of May, 1727. The Lord was stirring within them this desire to commit themselves in a greater way to the Lord and to one another. And so they actually wrote and signed as a community what they called the Brotherly Agreement. And it was simply this. It was an agreement to dedicate their lives to the service of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's our mission. We're going to put aside all the the things that are tearing us apart. We're going to unite around this call of seeking the Lord Jesus Christ and spending our lives in that pursuit. By later that same summer, there was 50 of these Moravians who'd committed to pray for one hour a day each, one after the other. 24-hour prayer. First example I can think of in church history of that kind of a desire as the Spirit led them. So 24 hours, seven days a week, they began to pray. And as amazing as it seems, that prayer meeting went on for 100 years. The Spirit of God just spurred something in them, and it's, it's known today as the 100-year prayer meeting. And so as these people began to pray, there was this spiritual awakening in the hearts of this small community. Remember, it's like, a couple of hundred people. Even at its peak, it was no more than about 300 people. I'm not talking about some movement that was hundreds of thousands or millions of people. But because of this commitment to the power of prayer, the Moravian community sent missionaries throughout the whole world. It was out of this movement that John Wesley was converted, George Whitfield as well, two of the most famous revivalists of the 18th century. William Carey as well became known, who became known as the father of the modern missions movement. It literally exploded from this little group of people that said, you know what, we can put aside 
all the things that are dividing us and we can commit to seeking God loving one another and see what he might do in our midst well as the Lord used this movement it went on to be called what a number of commentators call the greatest missionary movement in modern church history it just exploded to make a big impact doesn't require much in the hands of the Lord does it takes 120 people devoted to pray in an upper room. God says, well, I, can, I can take that and turn the known world upside down. can take less than 50 Moravians to commit. So, you know, this is what we can do. The world around us is going a little bit crazy. There's divisions and we're buying into that and we're just at each other. Let's put aside all that and covenant with one another to spend our lives seeking Jesus and see what he might do in our midst. doesn't take a lot of people. In fact, often it's size, it's influence, it's prosperity that is the greatest hindrance, not help, of the church. So I want us to stand if we can. We're going to finish with some worship. just to close your eyes because I want to pray for us but the invitation this morning as we try to kind of bring to a close and wrap up this series and what it means to be the church I want to give us an opportunity and it's, it's exactly that it's an invitation there's no compulsion twisting anyone's arm but to be that kind of a people. As I said from the beginning of the series, my desire was not to share some of these pictures so that we could sit back in the lounge chair and think, well, that's nice. Wouldn't that be great? Looking at the weeds growing higher and higher. Maybe someone else or maybe something will happen. Praying the Lord will come down, send his angels to clear the paddocks. Lord, let it be so. But sharing these glimpses and snapshots that it might spur something in our hearts that we are the church. That maybe, just maybe, God could use a little church like this in Canberra, Australia to achieve great things if we would just commit and covenant ourselves say that's what we want Lord do what you need to do in our hearts cause there to be a greater commitment to you to seek you to love you to worship you cause there to be a greater commitment to love one another to put aside our differences to strive for unity cause there be a greater passion to to make disciples to live for the glory of God to proclaim wonders of who he is to pray with faith the prayer that he taught us to pray Lord let your kingdom come so Lord I pray for us this morning that for those who are willing that there would be a response to that invitation that we would be 
a people who commit ourselves in a deeper and a greater way to seek together the glory of Jesus. You know, there was such a passion in the the Moravians' hearts as they'd been just in the presence of God and praying for some years. It's the stories told that two of them, in order to reach an unreached people group out on an island, the only way they could get there was to become slaves. And so they sold themselves willing into slavery. They went out to this island, preached the gospel. There was a great revival out there. And as they hopped onto the boat, at that funeral service for these two, two men, knowing that they'd never see them again. And they said the, the famous saying, that our lives are lived to see the Lamb get the rewards of His suffering. Lord, let there be that kind of a passion in the hearts of Your people. That passion to seek You, even at the cost of our comfort, even at the cost of what might go well for us in the eyes of the world. Lord, I'm asking, even in my own heart, today, this day, do a fresh and a new thing that we might commit our lives to you and to your kingdom purposes in a greater way in Jesus' name.